There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Yes, yes. Welcome into another edition of the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. I'm your host, Timothy Michael McKernan from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. And Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies is presenting our guest this week, Joe Edwards. Now, you might know Joe as really kind of the face of the Del Mar Loop. Certainly been in the news on the Loop Trolley, which gets all kinds of attention, Um and not, not necessarily positive attention. Of course, we talk about that. But I never knew until we started doing background for this interview how he built what he built and what was there before he built it on the Del Mar Loop. Um, it's, it's, got an, it's got a combination of a few of the things that people seem to really like with this podcast when we go outside of the scope of sports or politics. And that is uh, entrepreneurial businessmen or women. And... Um, St. Louis specific ventures and Joe Edwards is both of those. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't know his story until we started getting into, um, researching for him coming in and I'm looking at this going, I didn't know that he did all this and did that. And that, that was because, yeah, I mean, obviously the loop wasn't the way that it was until he started doing what he did and then hearing why he did what he did and what he has built since then. And then getting his thoughts on the state of St. Louis, which people always seem to enjoy hearing, especially, you know, it's one thing to like kind of go on social media, our town, fuck this, we suck. Okay, Joe Edwards, first one to say, you'll hear him say it. I showed up the loop and I'm like, this is a mess. But he did something about it. So God bless him. So his words have a little more credibility than like the guy popping off on Twitter looking for likes and retweets. Uh, So you hear that story in addition to his thoughts on the state of the city of St. Louis, also his thoughts on a potential merger of the city and county. And there's something there, too, that was newsworthy. Uh, As Gangster Pete said uh, when we got done, I really enjoyed this one. I know I've said I really enjoy this one to a lot of them. I think I enjoy this one. It's just it's interesting, for lack of a better term, and also informative, especially from somebody who did it. Ladies and gentlemen, presented by Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies, Joe Edwards. Well, Joe, I feel like everybody in St. Louis knows who you are, but I don't know if Many people know your story. So I would fall into that category. In researching the interview, I've learned a lot, but I'm looking forward to hearing how all that you have built came to pass. So if we can, let's uh, let's start at the beginning. Uh, growing up in, in St. Louis, what, where, where'd you grow up and, and, and what were you interested growing up? Well, uh, at first in an apartment in the city, and then most of my growing up years in um, Clayton near Polo Drive and went to Merrimack grade school, went to Burroughs since everybody else wants to know where you went to Absolutely. School. Went That's to a mandatory thing. Burroughs High School. <laughs> then I went to Duke University. And even after graduating from Duke, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. I'd been a collector all my life of all sorts of things from baseball cards to records to pop culture things to Mission Oak furniture to brass beds for a future apartment. I mean, it's hard to believe I was collecting furniture at 11 years old oh my gosh and i liked my parents it wasn't that but i was just looking forward <laughs> looking forward to getting out some year and um and getting an apartment 
If you're going to Duke, you got to be a sharp guy. You can't stumble into Duke. Duke's not a fallback position, so you must have been doing pretty well in school. Um, I did okay. I, I I think I got in in an era when it was a little easier to get in than it is now. Okay. <laughs> but I really appreciated my experience there, especially learning all about college basketball and knowing the players and going to games and and uh, was it a ridiculous atmosphere back then or yeah that it a, was I mean yeah. basketball in North Carolina was just like Indiana those two states I mm-hmm. think have crazy basketball fans college basketball mm-hmm. fans and uh, so I, I really got tuned in and turned on to basketball at that time and enjoyed a lot of games um, I enjoyed my whole stay there it was a really beautiful campus and. Uh, even though I partied a lot, and I learned most of my stuff in high school, I had a good, good high school here. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I got my first motorcycle and used to ride through the Duke forests and and ran across stills. Luckily, they were abandoned ones, or I probably would have been shot, but uh, <laughs> these were all moonshine type of stills. And uh, really, you know, had had a nice time. But after graduation, didn't know what I wanted to do. So when I came back to St. Louis, I um, decided to try to open a place uh where I could unbox a lot of my collections and pop culture collections and put them in display cases. And most importantly, program the jukebox. That was before CDs or internet jukeboxes and all. And I had a, and still have a, a big record collection, maybe 30,045 RPM records and wow. 12,078 RPMs, some old cylinders, uh, a lot of CDs, a lot of LPs. And uh, so I changed, I typed, hand typed out all the title strips for the jukebox including the year that I put in parentheses when the song was popular and rotated them all without fail every two weeks, all except the song Blueberry Hill by Fats Domino. And it really became a thing. People would come in for that jukebox. Uh, People, great St. Louisans that became great later on, like John Goodman, uh, who grew up in Afton here in St. Louis County. and, And he and his friends would come in and just have a blast. I mean, they just pump quarter after quarter in that jukebox and play air guitar and sing songs and all. It was really kind of fun seeing people enjoy themselves. And then just all the pop culture stuff. And, and it was tough. The first couple of years were really tough. Uh, I almost went out of business three times in those first two years, primarily because I banned two-thirds of the customers for life. There were a lot of good people that came in, but a lot of them weren't good at all, like a couple of motorcycle gangs. And I like motorcycle people. And a lot of them still come in, but not the, not the gangs that were dealing huge quantities of drugs and everything and, you know, murdering people and stuff like that. So I banned all of them. And, and, uh, and of course they were the heaviest beer guzzlers. <laughs> so they went <laughs> to profits, but, uh, but yeah. it, I, I wanted to set a tone for, I was young at the time and wanted to set a tone for Blueberry Hill and for the Delmar loop and start bringing it back little by little. I realized if I, that within the first seven days of opening that if I didn't work on the area, Blueberry Hill wouldn't make it. So I approached different business people. There were not that many of them around at that time. The area had been in great decline. And I talked to the police department and city hall and said, well, let's try to bring this back and just form a loose-knit merchants organization that in 1980 we made it official by forming a special business district. But it was it was something that the history of the loop is, in just a, a nutshell, is the first building started getting built on that part of Del Mar in the early 1900s. And by 1930... It was a high-fashion shopping district. All the best stores and women's clothing shops and everything were, were there. And people would ride a streetcar from downtown St. Louis or wherever else they lived in St. Louis um, out to the Loop, and it would loop around and then head back, hence the nickname the Delmar Loop. And 
it was it was marvelous. And then you know, time passed. World War II came and went, and prosperity after World War II really came to America in a big way, where families could purchase an automobile or sometimes two uh, in the same family. And that's when the first malls started getting built. The first one uh, that I remember was called West Roads Mall, and that's where the Galleria is now. And uh, then some of the higher-end stores moved to the malls, and so second-tier stores filled in, but it still wasn't quite the same, and then the decline kept going. And not just on Del Mar or in St. Louis, but around the country, similar mm-hmm. things were taking place. When um, after, after the 1960 period, there was a lot of, white flight. It was kind of a dark moment in our country's history where real estate agents would block bus by scaring people. Oh my gosh, you know, your street's going to change. You better sell while it's your house has any value still. And, um, and that's just, just horrible. And, but it, it worked. I mean, a lot of neighborhoods went down very, very rapidly. And the same was happening in commercial districts like the Delmore Loop. By the time I got there and decided to open Blueberry Hill, half the storefronts were either vacant or boarded up being used for warehouse space or had small offices in them and not retail or, or restaurant. And a lot of people at that time, a lot of good and tolerant people dug in their heels and said, this is crazy. Let's embrace diversity and, and make it a strength of the area. And a lot of open-minded and tolerant people moved in and little by little it, the neighborhood stabilized. And now it's one of the most naturally diverse areas in the, in the Midwest, if not the country. And it's so wonderful to see uh, people not just racially and ethnically uh, diverse and integrated, but uh, age-wise. There are older adults that live in the area, and they intermingle at the sidewalk cafes with and the pubs with, which, and shops with the WashU students, mm-hmm. Washington University students, and uh, Fontbonne and other universities, St. Louis University students, and high school students, if I, for that matter. And, and so that, that's healthy. And then it's, it's economically uh, diverse, where... They're fifty or sixty thousand dollar homes, three blocks one direction, and half a million dollar homes or more, three blocks another. So people of all economic strata can interact with each other in a regular environment, and, and uh, it's so marvelous. And everybody talks about music and sports and argues politics, <laughs> which is always healthy too. <laughs> Gets the adrenaline going. <laughs> well, I'm curious. I mean, because 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 so many people. Um, you know, my age and younger just go, oh, the loop. And they just think it's always been this way. But you, of course, went in there when it was not. So you leave Duke and you, why did you choose that spot? Well, a couple of reasons. One, the rents were really, really low. I was, I figured that had to be one of them. <laughs> because I didn't really have any money. I mm-hmm. opened Blueberry Hill on ten and a half thousand dollars of borrowed money from friends. And really? That was how you did it? Yeah, I was really on a shoestring. I'm in a real thin shoestring. <laughs> Um, and also it was near Washington University, and the architecture was still pretty good. A few buildings had been torn down or fell down due to neglect, but it was still interesting. Uh, and and I just I just liked that aspect of it, those those several aspects, I guess. Uh, the cheap rent was probably the biggest single reason, though. <laughs> but what about the foresight? I mean, I don't know how many people, especially if they're on a, you know, $10,500 that you borrow from friends, to think about, the only way I'm going to survive and thrive here is if I play a role in helping build up what is around me. I don't know how many people would be thinking that way. I'd be thinking about, I just got to survive and I'm going to focus on inside. But that was something that, that certainly was part of your 
either your philosophy or your business model. That that's 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 pretty impressive at a young age, fresh out of college, to be thinking that way. Yeah, it was just due to necessity, really. I've I've always been a person who just observes and digests information as much as I can, and then I try to make an intelligent decision based on that. So, but I observed the area. Uh, fixing it up. And then the first week open too. I mean, I was over like a six month period and I just kept watching what was going on and just could see it continuing to go down and, and more and more rapidly. And, and, uh, that's why I decided to do it. So I started spending a lot of time on the loop itself and still a lot of time on Blueberry Hill. Mm-hmm. But right now I spend more time on the loop projects than I do on my own. Yeah. And, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a great area. It's, it, and it's, the American Planning Association has designated the Delmar Loop as one of the 10 great streets in America. And that's pretty exciting when they did that. Wow. That was a great announcement. Well, how, how, I mean, you, you've played such a, I mean, I'm sure you would want to distribute the credit, but I mean, you know, you were, you were the guy to have the vision and to put the work in to do it. What was the vision at the outset? Did you visualize that, or are you just like, I got to make this better because my business is going to go out of business if I don't? Yeah, I, I never envisioned me becoming a developer or, or renovating buildings or building new buildings at that time. I, I did envision myself trying to get everybody to work together. And the, the loop was pretty dark and gloomy and a lot of trash around. I mean, you could find a parking spot any place because it was so uh, kind of vacant, so many yeah. vacancies. But I, I realized, well, we need to get more, you know, trash receptacles. We need to get dust to dawn lighting on backs of buildings and alleys and on the sides underneath awnings. We need to get flower planters to make it brighter, more cheerful and, and all. And so I focus on those kinds of community building aspects, which were affordable over a period of time. But mm-hmm. I, the reason I co-founded the, the official business district that we, where we voted to tax ourselves extra money just to put back in the area how we wanted to spend the money in case city hall didn't like the project or didn't have the money for it. Um, because I've got in the early days, I was just, it was a loose knit one. I would go around everybody say, Oh yeah, I'll give $50 toward this project. Then I go around to collect it and they say, Oh, I don't really have that money right now. Or I changed my mind. And oh, that yeah. was really frustrating spending that much time. Sure. Wasted time. Yeah. And you don't actually get the dollars after the projects in play. So when, when you, when you talk about the culture of the loop, when people think of that, you just made reference to it, diverse and organically diverse, um, whether it be economic, whether it be whatever background, racial, ethnic, uh, sexual orientation, religious, whatever the case might be, has that always been a hallmark of that area or is that a byproduct of what you and your peers on the businesses of the loop began to create? I think w- once the evolution started a- after Bluebird Hill opened in 1972 and a lot of people stayed and others came in, they were all pretty progressive and open-minded people. And I think University City where the redevelopment loop started that they were always kind of known the citizens the residents were always kind of known as being open-minded mm-hmm. and progressive and, and uh, so I think a, a certain amount of it was there but the people that did move in and starting started to stem the decline and level it out uh, were also very open-minded and, and progressive so it is a kind of a combination we were always the people that came in Blueberry Hill and the people that worked at Blueberry Hill I mean it was just important to me that they just be welcome. I mean, just whether they had tattoos or they were gay or whatever it might be, uh, and it, and it, and it worked. I mean, just cause we just looked at people in general and, and not, you know, Oh, we want 
all handsome guys to attend bar and all pretty girls to wait tables. That, mm-hmm. that was not our plan at all. So, um, and I'm proud of that. Yeah. Well, uh, it speaks for itself since 1970. I like pretty girls and I think handsome men are nice too. <laughs> yeah, <but. laughs> that's right. Nobody's, nobody's arguing against them. It just wasn't the model. Well, outside of, I mean, you, you brought in the menu and I immediately like my, my mouth starts watering. It really is one of the best burgers in town. Has it been the same thing from the beginning? How, I mean, were you some culinary wizard at a young age? How'd you get, how'd you get the burger? What'd you do to get the burger to be so good? Cause really people name best burgers in St. Louis and Blueberry Hills always going to be mentioned. Yeah. And no, I'm, I'm proud of that. I, I, I love hamburgers. I eat one a day. Good, and, do you um, really? Yeah. Oh, I that's great. Do you go fries as well? Or do you cut back on the fries? I, I I'm do. a big fry guy as well. Yeah, no, I love fries too. God bless. Yep. Right here. <laughs> and the, buffalo, the buffalo fries are really good. These, now I got to get on that. Yeah. I haven't had them. <laughs> they're, they're spicy, but not too spicy. They're just a little bit spicy, okay. kind of wafery. I like but that. Both, both fries are good. Uh, no, I just, I just thought, well, let's get the best beef possible and not add anything to it. Let's just learn how to cook it right. If someone wants it medium or medium rare or whatever their, their cooking desire is and, and have a good bun and then let people put whatever they want on it to their taste. And I think we're the only place that serves hamburgers in St. Louis, whether it's fast food or independent restaurants that don't put anything in. We don't put spices in. We don't put extra additives or mix it up in with other types of meat. It's just really, really good ground beef. And that's, that's the secret or the non-secret. Yeah, I was about to say, it's the <laughs> simplest answer, but it, yet it's one of the best burgers. Well, that's a, that's a trip. What do you guys cook it on? Some people go with, you know. Uh, the grill, grill yeah, exactly. at Blueberry Hill. Peacock Diner's a griddle, but okay. uh, Blueberry Hill is, is grill. And it takes some skill to, to know how to cook it just right and all. And I'm very happy that it, it's a nice place to work, I think, because, and the proof is that we've had uh, cooks there that have been there over 30 years. And several wow. over 20 years and several more over 15. And they really have good experience and, and can really do, do it. Yeah, they know how to work that thing over. Well, in addition to it being a great bar and restaurant, the music is, is a signature element of it. And your relationship with the late, great Chuck Berry, how did that begin? Well, that's one of those unpredictable things in life. I never, ever thought I would become Chuck Berry's best friend. Uh, but it happened. I, I, the first time I ever saw him was after a concert in the mid sixties. And just as a fan, I went up and said, Hey, great concert. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it, where was this? Was this in St. Louis? Yeah, it was at a high school gym in St. Louis. And there, no reason he would ever remember that. But in, in 1981, just for fun, I brought out a beer called rock and roll beer. And I had it brewed in new Orleans and canned there and later on bottled, um, and shipped it to kind of a lot of different places, even to, to Japan and really? London and not in huge quantities, just one container, each type of thing to different countries. And, uh, it was very time consuming. And, and the, I, I started that, I should have waited 10 more years when craft beer started <laughs> getting a foothold and all, uh, cause the three big ones, Anheuser-Busch and Miller and, and Coors and all were really d- dominant. And, and, uh, even on shelf space in grocery stores, uh, it was hard to get shelf space. But, but it was it was fun, and, and a jukebox on a can. Then I decided to start a Heroes of Rock and Roll series. And it was real important to me that Chuck Berry be the first one, where I put his picture on the can, along with picking out, like, 16 of his greatest anthems. Mm-hmm. Later on, it was Jerry Lee Lewis and Bo Diddley, but Chuck was first. And so I, I offered him, I met with him, and made him an offer. And it was prop, and I, he knew I didn't have a lot of money, I was getting better than I was in 1972 financially, but mm-hmm. I, I wasn't well 
you know, off. Um, but I made him an offer similar to what Coca-Cola or some big company might have offered him for a similar thing. And, and I think it really had an impact on him that, wow, here's this youngish kid that, you know, by then one quite a kid, but anyway, mm-hmm. just, um, that is making me a fair offer. And so we started hanging out a little bit and I'd drive them to different concerts. Uh, like to see the Neville brothers down at the old Mississippi nights or, you know, things like that. And just slowly over a couple of years, grew into friends and, and just, we trusted each other and enjoyed each other's company And who knew. Oh my gosh. So then that leads to him playing at your place. Yep. Through the years, I, I travel with him a couple of different places every year to various cities and concerts. And, and, uh, and he really enjoyed that because I could kind of act as interference, you know, you know, let's walk this way. Uh-huh. And there's a big crowd coming this way and, <laughs> and all, um, so that, that was fun. But, yeah, one night we were sitting over at my house, real late at night, just, and he was reminiscing about his early days in, in rock and roll and performing, and, and he turned to me and said, you know, Joe, I'd really like to play a place the size of the ones I played when I first started out. And we looked at each other for just a half a second, well, let's do it. Let's do it at Blueberry Hill. And I was in the process of building the Duck Room at that time in, in 1997 and expanding Blueberry Hill, and... Um, Gosh, I mean, it just happened. And 209 monthly concerts, legendary concert series written about in Rolling Stone, featured on BBC and things all over the world all the time. And people came from all over the world to the Delmore Loop to see Chuck Berry in that intimate of a setting. And he really enjoyed it. I mean, he really loved connecting with the audience there because you're right there. I mean, you can mm-hmm. see his eyes. He can see your eyes. And and uh, every concert was different. He, he would play a lot of the same songs, but a lot of different ones too, but they're always played differently. And he would change keys on the band and by, mm-hmm. you know, by chance, I should say, <laughs> and all they'd have to catch up. It was, it was really fun. It was fun watching the whole dynamic of, of him coming on stage. Cause I, I would introduce him every month. And if I'd known he was going to do 209 months, I, I probably wouldn't have taken the time to write a different introduction each month. <laughs> yeah, you put some pressure on yourself, I guess. <laughs> but I did. And once I started, I, I just kept it up. And there's so much to say about him that it was it was easier that I'm making it sound. But I loved going out there and introducing him and saying, oh, gentlemen, gentlemen, the great Chuck Berry. And then he'd come on stage, everybody's hooting and hollering. Yeah. And after the beginning, his first song, some sometimes it would take a song or two to get him in sync, for him to get in sync with the band and really connect and other times it would happen instantly. Then it might take another two or three songs to really lock in with the audience. But once that happened, it was just off to the races. It was just glorious yeah. watching the interaction between the fans and Chuck Berry. And such an intimate setting. So how many people, on average, you think, would, would be at these shows? Because you can't fit in, you know, like your standard show. We have thousands of people. What, did you, what would you think? We're... Uh, 340. It, it's sold out all the time. Every time. If, if yeah. you didn't get your tickets... You're within in. a week of going on sale, and we can't we can't do three fifty. It's three forty, and that's all we got room for. Right? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool, man. So how 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 what was it, how old was he when he played his last show? Oh gosh, um, probably eighty six or seven. Really? Yeah, I'd, I'd have to figure that out, but right around there, <sighs> anyway. Which was pretty amazing. Yeah. And you know, it was getting a little harder for him to play at, at that age, but he enjoyed it so much and the audience loved it. Uh, even if he'd forget a lyric or something, it didn't really matter. Yeah. Everybody was singing along and, uh, then he'd pick it right back up again, but he still just could play that guitar like nobody it's, it, Amazing. The talent that man had, it's, it's, uh, 
He was a great songwriter, the first great poet laureate of rock and roll. Bob Dylan idolized Chuck Berry, among others, um, as, a, as a songwriter. And, um, and in fact, when he did an interview in Rolling Stone, when Bob Dylan did the interview in Rolling Stone, he's done many, but Doug Brinkley, the great historian, did this big cover story interview. And about midway through the longest interview he ever gave for Rolling Stone, Doug Brinkley had the gall to ask Bob Dylan, "Well, how do you how do you rank yourself in the in the living you know musicians? How would you rank yourself?" And that, that's a question I didn't think Bob Dylan would ever even answer. And he answered it, and he said, "Number two, second to Chuck Berry." Pretty amazing. Yeah, that's that's quite a compliment coming from him. Or Holiday uh, was he was on the show this podcast, mm-hmm. and he was telling me the the project he's been. Working on, I would imagine you two have crossed paths oh, about sure. what he's w- working on with uh, well, Johnny what, Johnson. That's right, Johnny Johnson. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Johnny Johnson was a wonderful friend. Also, um, I was friends with the two of them together and friends separately too. Um, they would each come over to my house at different times for you know just playing the piano. I have a nice grand piano that. So you um, just have these guys in your house just playing music. I, I'm the luckiest guy around. <laughs> oh, were you, did you love music growing up, or was it something that came as a byproduct of what you had going on at Blueberry Hill? No, I, I loved it growing up. That's why I started collecting records once I could afford them, either through poker winnings or a, a small allowance. Oh, I didn't know you were a poker guy. Now i got to go down that road. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't played in years. So Perfect, then we ought to play. <laughs> I got to, yeah, right? <laughs> Here, just take $5 now. <laughs> oh, my God, that's awesome. So so you love me. Yeah, 35000 I mean, I guess it goes without saying, your, your music fan is 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 the pageant in delmar hall like okay i see what's going on with the loop i've got to i've got to continue to cultivate this i love music i see what we were able to do on this end let's try to build it here is that the thought process when these projects begin yes I, yeah i um a, a good friend of mine pat hagan who who used to run mississippi nights long ago um and i started talking once the duck room was open and it was successful and people really liked it we started talking because so i was realizing that a lot of musical acts were bypassing St. Louis. They would go from Chicago to Dallas, yeah. Chicago to Kansas City, because there wasn't a 2,000 capacity uh, place with really good sound, really good lighting and all, and good dressing rooms and easy load-in. And uh, so the two of us got together and, and uh, decided to start working on the pageant. And what, what year was that? Uh, 2000 is when it actually opened. Okay, I was about to guess 2000. Yeah. All right, so it was 2000 in the nose. All right. Yep. And, uh, and, and, that had to work because I risked everything. The, the building I built uh, with my own uh, loans, I should say. I didn't have that much money, but that loans I could get. And uh, and it had to work right away. And thank goodness it did. And it was popular right from the beginning. Uh, we tweaked the sound. The sound was not perfect right in the beginning because you don't know for sure until you open a place yeah. how, how it's that big, how it's going to be. Uh, so we kept tweaking it. Now the sound is great. It's so It's so good. Uh, for musicians too, because and people like Al Drew, the great late jazz guy, who just loved the neighborhood and walked around. But Dave Grohl of Foo Fighters, um, he plays there several times, and he would tell me after concerts, "Joe, this is my favorite place in the world. I've toured all over Nirvana, and I've been doing it with Foo Fighters, and I love the 9:30 Club in Washington D.C. But this is the place. It's like separate. It's a step above." And that was a high, high compliment. 
that's about as good of a compliment as you get from that guy who's played everywhere and has had like two lives of two great careers with two incredible bands. And he says the pageant is his favorite place. Did he go into any explanation as to why? I mean, he loves the way it sounds, obviously. The, the intimacy of the venue, I would imagine, also. Yeah, just a little bit of everything. everything and, yeah. and then he, he was just, it was after the concert, he was just sitting on steps leading up to the dressing rooms eating a burrito. <laughs> and and he kept telling me, well, Joe, I really mean that. I said, no, I believe you. Said, no, I really, really mean it. <laughs> I said, well, thank you. Yeah, thank man. you. And even if you don't, I love hearing it. It's yeah. the greatest. Oh, that's so cool. So, I mean, you have Chuck Berry and Johnny Johnson in your house playing music. Dave Grohl sitting there in the building you built. The concert hall you built telling you this is his favorite place to play in the world. I mean, the paths you have crossed with some of the legends in, in music, uh, if, if you could, uh, who have you, outside of the names that we've already we talked about. Hope you're enjoying the conversation here on the Tim McKernan Show from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. Our sponsors make all of this possible. And James Carlton's been with us from the very beginning. 314-961-4800 or go online at carltoninsurance.net. James Carlton is his name. James Carlton is now my agent. So impressed with him that we switched to him. And then when we've run into problems since, James has been at the absolute forefront of taking care of business for us. His name is James Carlton. 314-961-4800 for your home, for your auto, for your life insurance. James Carlton is the person. He staffs his office with a bunch of people to make sure that if you call during business hours, you're not going to get automated responses. You're not going to be farmed out to some call center somewhere else. They're right here in St. Louis and Webster Groves, as a matter of fact. And the service you get is second to none. I am so happy that I switched to James Carlton. I can't begin to tell you how happy I am that I switched to James Carlton. He helped us when we had issues and he can help you as well. And when it came to coverage, he's like, hey, you know, I noticed you didn't have coverage here. Or, hey, I think you're paying too much for coverage there. That's the difference. There's a big difference, too. 314-961-4800. Go online at carltoninsurance.net. James Carlton. If, if your insurance costs a leg and an arm, call James Carlton. State Farm. Well, if you if people go to Blueberry Hill, there are two areas where there are a lot of photographs of, of me with other people. Many of them taken, most of them taken at Blueberry Hill or the pageant. A few of them taken at Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremonies and a couple um, elsewhere. But I, I never thought I'd meet a president, let alone three presidents. I never thought the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States would every dinner in Blueberry Hill. That happened with a bunch of federal judges. I spent a whole afternoon with Robert Duvall, the great actor, and his beautiful white Argentinian wife. What, um, what, what was uh, Robert doing? He was hanging out at Blueberry Hill? He, yeah, he came, he came into town. He went to Principia um, when he was young and growing up and they had something like a 50th anniversary thing or I don't know what the event was, but the head of Principia College over in Elsa, Illinois, right across the river called and said, you know, Robert Duvall's coming and we don't really know what to tell him about St. Louis and would you mind joining us for lunch? And I said, oh, shucks. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have lunch with Tom Hagen. Yeah, right. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And um, so really just the two of us talked the whole time everybody else just got, there weren't many there was just a table of like five people and it was just it was great oh, um cool as that and talking about his favorites lonesome dove and and the godfather of course uh movies but then you know so many other times i i've uh well re- reintroduced chuck berry to bob dylan reintroduced paul mccartney to chuck berry uh down at the old bush stadium when paul mccartney was playing a concert here that was a fun night um 
because uh, it took about six weeks. I asked Chuck, I said, well, Paul McCartney's coming come to uh, St. Louis. Would you like to uh, meet up with him? And he said, sure. So, you know, if you can arrange it. And so I started calling, first of all, in England and tracking, trying to track him down. And it's hard to convince people, yes, I really am Chuck Berry's best friend, but and, um, <laughs> this is real. But after six weeks of calling just about every day, I finally got him. He was already on the road in the United States and his touring manager, uh, they finally checked me out, I guess, and realized it was true. And they, he said, sure, Paul would love to. Paul and Linda Eastman was still alive at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they invited us to dinner, chucking me to dinner. So the two of us went down to Bush Stadium underneath Bush Stadium. I didn't realize how many areas there were down there underneath. Yeah. And we were, it was fun because their kids were, were there with them too. Stella, who's now a big fashion uh, person, and James, and everybody was, was there. And, and we were riding golf course around like a Beatles movie. It was really fun, <laughs> just having, having fun. Sat down to dinner, enjoyed dinner. Uh, Linda gave me a copy of her book, Unexpected, her cookbook, uh, vegetarian cookbook, and uh, and all. Then we they took us underneath Bush Stadium to where the sound stage was. I guess under second base, roughly, and you rise up, and there you are with the greatest seats possible for sound. Then, um, so dinner is over, and Paul's getting ready to go on stage, and Chuck turns to me and says, "You know, um, are you hungry still?" And I said, well, kind of, yeah. And he, he said, you know, where was the meat? And I said, well, they're vegetarian. They don't, they don't eat meat. And uh, so I think both Chuck and I do eat meat, so we were still a little hungry. But, <laughs> but it was a wonderful night. They were great hosts. Oh, my God. Chuck Berry and Paul McCartney. And you're hanging out there at dinner with them. Yeah, there's a, there's a picture up in the dart room at Blueberry Hill of, of, of that meeting. Yeah. And um, the same with, with uh, Bob Dylan and, and many others. I mean, it, it's incredible. Uh the people that have come through Blueberry Hill through the years, it's just, it's pretty amazing. Even if they're not playing at Blueberry Hill mm-hmm. and they're in town, they, they like to come by. So you'll see a lot of different, a lot of different people. Which presidents uh, have you met? Uh, Barack Obama and Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton. Okay. And did they, did they come through or did you meet them elsewhere? How'd this uh, all come to pass? Those were all taken in St. Louis. Uh, Bill Clinton was at, at the pageant. He, he gave us a, a speech on behalf of Claire McCaskill when she was running for senator years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a Saturday morning, and it was really, he's a dynamic speaker and all, and it was well attended. It was a free a free event um, for people that, you know, wanted to vote for her but didn't have a lot of money or anything. So he did a free one there, and then like a $1,500 one at the Chase right after that. But it was it was interesting because he was, he'd already, not, he wasn't president by then. He still had Secret Service uh, coverage or, mm-hmm. and protection. Right. And they were there, and everything was safe. And all, but then uh, after the limos came to pick everybody up to take them to the fancy fundraiser, I guess because there was really no danger or anything, the Secret Service guys were all outside by then. It was just Bill Clinton and me in the green room, and he said, "You know, I'm kind of thirsty. Uh, do you have a soda, like a, a Seven Up or something like that?" So I got him a soda, and um, I probably shouldn't say this, but then he said, uh, "By the way, is there is there a bathroom where I, can, you know?" And so yeah, so I so I, I showed him where ours. So. Abe Lincoln didn't sleep there, but Bill Clinton <laughs> was there. <laughs> he can always put that up. <laughs> oh, it's awesome. I mean, so many great projects. You look at what the loop is now. I mean, when you, when you if you, if you, I'm sure you probably have seen pictures of when you started, what you started in 72 mm-hmm. versus what you see now. Do you, do you, do you feel pride in that? How, how, what's, what's the emotion to, to see something like, 
something that was, you know, in, in great decline and to now is, I think, arguably the most thriving street in St. Louis, as you just made reference to. It's one of the top 10 streets in America. I mean, and you played a large role in that, if not the biggest role, of course. Yeah, I, I'm I'm working seven days and five nights a week still, so I don't pause to look at that very often. But sometimes when I'm walking down Del Mar, you know, just on a summer evening by myself, I'll look and I'm like, holy Toledo, this is really something. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of, of saving the Tivoli Movie Theater building. Um, and that's what got me into developing other buildings. I learned a lot from that. But what happened is I, I, I had bought Blueberry Hills building. Um, I mean, I started Blueberry Hill from scratch, but I was a renter at the time. So yeah, I was able yeah. to buy, finally buy it and pay it off. And I felt very comfortable. I could sleep peacefully at night. No, no debt by then, uh, by 1994. Then I picked up the Post-Dispatch, and on the front page was a picture of the uh, the box office window of the Tivoli Theater with a handwritten sign that said closed forever. And that just pierced my heart. I said, oh my gosh, this can't happen. This We cannot have this building torn down. Uh, the upper three floors had used to be apartments. They were all condemned for nine years when fires broke out and things. Um, and the storefronts were in horrible condition and a couple of them vacant. And then with the theater closing, that would have just been it. And, and it was just going to be torn down for either just a few parking spaces or a little tiny strip mall, which would not have helped the area. It's a beautiful building, mm-hmm. historically significant, architecturally significant. And to have a theater still in a neighborhood is really nice. So um, I knew I could afford to buy the building. I didn't know if I could afford to fix it up or even how to fix it up, that that big of a project. But I was able to, within a month, I owned it. And um, and the owner sold it to me and and then started working on it. And the way I fix things up, I do it as first class as I can because I think they'll last longer and all. So at that time, the vertical sign that says Tivoli wasn't even up. The marquee was covered with a bunch of junk. The terrazzo floor in the lobby of the vestibule when you first walk in was covered and glued down with stuff. It was just horrible. The inside of the theater, decades prior, a, a water leak started over the stage where they used to have vaudeville shows and all. There's an orchestra yeah. pit there and all too. And, um, and, the fly space where the, the movie screen actually does go up and down because they used to have backdrops for the vaudeville shows and dressing rooms there. Anyway, that, that there was such a gaping hole eventually that pigeons could fly in and out just without any problem. So I, when I bought the building, I then sight unseen at, at backstage. I went in there and really looked around. There were three and a half feet of standing water in the basements, about a foot and a half of pigeon droppings all over the stage. That And what they had done years ago, rather than repair the roof and do everything that they should have been doing, they just moved the whole screen out. And, and just that whole back third was covered up and just left. And, and ductwork went right down the center that covered up these beautiful recessed domes. And then they sprayed the whole interior with this kind of erpy greenish black color to absorb light where people wouldn't see how bad the condition was. Oh when I bought it, there were no, and people that went to shows there late uh, could attest to this, that you had to wear coats in the wintertime and you were perspiring in the summertime and you could feel little critters going across your feet. And ah! It was amazing how poorly uh, maintained it was. And yet now it's, you know, I mean, that now was, it's really, yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a signature part of many parts. I restored, I built a, a brand new neon, so had a brand new neon sign built from old photographs. It's, it's 29 feet tall and it's within a quarter of an inch of exactly how the old sign used to look. 
all the photos were black and white, so I don't know about the colors I had to pick. But mm-hmm. Even though I'd seen them before, I just couldn't remember it, but it had been gone for so long. And uh, then I had these craftsmen who were really, really good, very old-school t- craftsmen. They made 200 different castings, molds, uh, plaster molds for the different roping around the thing, the, the lattice work, the medallions all over the place. Yeah. And all those were put back and then hand-painted with a really nice color palette. And, and uh, it's it's really a, a nice theater. I think people really enjoy seeing movies there. Yeah, I would have. I mean, I was I was going to ask you which which of all of these things stands out to you, but it sounds like, especially considering when you, that business decision was made in part emotionally when you saw that picture on the Post-Dispatch closed forever. Yeah, and I, did, I didn't know anything about running a theater. I had to learn a whole new business. It seems like I keep doing that, too. Right? <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. Like, yeah, that's pin-up bowl. <laughs> oh, I have to learn the bowling industry and all the mechanical stuff. And But the, the theater part, so I, I ran it for the first few years, and, and now I lease it to Landmark to do the operations. I still own the theater and all the display cases in it. Um, another thing I like about the theater, I, I, I collected all these old movie auction poster, catalog, poster catalogs, and then collected any other catalogs or books that had posters in them uh, from the golden age and the silver age of movies because the artwork was so gorgeous. And, and, all. and so I cut them up. One winter I figured, well, I'm going to take about two or two and a half weeks and make these collages, like big collages out of these smaller reduced posters, pictures. And it, it took me about three months, six hours a night, as it turned out, to do it. But I'm there's a Western theme with all the Western movies. There's one with the horror movies. There's one with animation. And it's really kind of neat uh, in, in itself, the artwork, and then just piecing all these things together so the borders around each one uh, are just right. Oh, that's so cool to have that to have that right there. I've had, when I said to people we were having you on, a couple of like, oh, I wonder what's going on with the miniature golf course. So I got to ask. What, the, where, where do things stand on uh, the miniature golf course? Magic mini golf, correct? Yeah, I, I, I'm, uh, my plan is to build a, a, an 18-hole indoor course so you can do it all year long, have receptions, wedding receptions, or just friends or business groups uh, or kids uh, in there anytime, and two lanes of shuffleboard, full court ones, so you can have leagues or just fun, and then a, a small Ferris wheel that I bought from the Muni Opera that they used on stage a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. It, they're five seats or cabs that, you know, go around. You can fit two adults or three kids on them and have that indoors, too. And a couple of other surprises or games coming mm-hmm. up. But those are the main the main three. And this uh, is across from the pageant. It's across from the pageant and the Moonrise Hotel. Uh, and part of the property is an old church building, and I'm renovating that right now. Got a new roof on it, and all the tuck pointing's almost finished. But the, the Magic Mini Golf would be in a new building uh, next to it, kind of an L-shaped building. Uh, built just for this purpose, and hopefully the bids getting bid out right now, and hopefully construction on that part of it will start if everything works out well. Then in another month or so, and it'll be ready next spring. So it's on. People love. I love I, this idea. I love this idea. Well, I was happy to see in, in the in the paper today too that Tower T is going to become Tower T again, way out in the county, uh, because I when they had their going away sale. Um, I bought a, a blue rhino. Um, <laughs> when I was reading the article, I guess they had a picture, or they, you know they mentioned Joe Edwards bought the blue rhino from Tower T Mini Golf. Right. <laughs> and I know that people were spearheading it to come back as, as as Tower T again. Asked me when I was leaving the auction grounds, they said, you know, if we ever can pull this off, 
would you sell it back to us? And I said, yeah, I would. I, and normally I don't ever buy and sell stuff because I would spend too much time doing it, but it, they, they, they deserve it. They, if they want to use it again in, in the hole, I would sell it back to them. I planned on using it at, at Magic Mini Golf mm-hmm. in, on one of the holes. But on this one, you will return it should the Tower T come back as now is expected. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. If, they, if they want it. They, if they want it. Another project that, that certainly has gotten a lot of... Uh, attention is the is the loop trolley um did the loop trolley come to rebirth so to speak because of what was going on for decades in st louis with the trolley coming from downtown and then out for the retail was that was that the vision yeah that, that i came up with the plan in 1997 i, I attended a, a charrette a neighborhood charrette where you have planners and architects and just neighborhood residents and the, the the big question the reason they organized this get together was east of skinker on del mar was still in bad shape and getting not any better right uh buildings were collapsing a lot of uh, vacancies and and uh and not so many good things going on and, and so how can we ever get people to invest east of skinker and i sat through the meeting it was like a two or three hour meeting after about an hour and a half of people well, let's put flower pots out, let's hang banners from light poles and all. And those are all nice ideas, but that's not going to cause, as bad as that part of Delmar was at the time, cause people to invest big amounts of money to renovate buildings or build new ones. And it just hit me that, wow, this area built up around a streetcar system and the buildings are out you know, close to the street and all, like a lot of, a lot of older cities. Let's bring the streetcar back. Let's, let's bring trolleys back. And, uh, connect with Forest Park and, and number one city park in the United States. Not only is it bigger than Central Park, but it has all those wonderful things that are free for the most part, like St. Louis Zoo and the Art Museum, the Science Center and the History Museum. Uh, it, and um, it was met with kind of silence. Nobody didn't like it, the idea, but they well, they weren't thinking on a scale mm-hmm. like that. So but I thought about it. Maybe I was wrong. And the next couple of days I thought about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought it really was a good idea. So I started going around talking to people one-on-one, different neighborhood groups, different individuals. And people really realized, yeah, that could draw investment the, due to the fixed track nature of it. The reason it took so long to get it built, it was important to me to not have any funds, local funds, come out of general revenue funds, you know, whether it's University City or the city of St. Louis. So it's, it's hard to find, you know, around $50 million uh, to build something like that, which, by the way, is half the price of Kansas City's, and there's just the same length, 2.2 <laughs> miles, so we did watch the money. Um, but it had to come from transit money only, the money that couldn't be spent on education or, or health care and all that. And, and the biggest single... Um, grant, the infusion of money, it was this $25 million urban circulator fund grant. 65 cities vied for these grants and only five received them for, for trolleys. And we were one. So St. Louis actually won that for a change. And if we had not, then it would have gone to a different state altogether. Mm-hmm. And again, it would have been spent on electric transit in another state. So I was, I was happy with that. We've also folded in several projects during the construction phase to save taxpayers even more money by um, put, doing projects that weren't really officially trolley projects. Like in U-City, one of the big things was the roundabout that where six streets came together, three on each side, very dangerous, hard to get in and out of neighborhoods, difficult for pedestrians. So due to the trolley project, the roundabout idea came about and was built. 
and the grants from that we folded into our contracts so the same contractor could do it all and save money. Um, the bridge over the at the Forest Park Metrolink stop just before you got into Forest Park mm-hmm. uh, was crumbling. It was 60 to 80 years old, and within five or 10 years would have to be redone. So we folded that several million dollar part in, into it. And also a lot of the 51 million wasn't even directly trolley related. We just are, it was just, it made practical sense to do it and, and do all the construction all at one time and get it done and over with. So it worked out. I know some people think some businesses went out of business during construction and it was difficult at times during construction for the six weeks that the construction was in front of a business. But no businesses went out because the, the, the furniture store that made much to do about they closed six months early uh, because the trolley construction was coming. They not only closed that store, they closed the one downtown. And there was no trolley construction downtown. But they did get a lot of coverage, and so they're going at a business sale. went very well. Um, so smart but very hurtful for the project to start that, that tone. Um, a, a woman that had a, a really good clothing store in the loop due to internet and all the reasons though it was, she also had three other ones. So she closed all four of those at the same time. Again, not because of the trolley. So I'd like to correct that misconception, but the media likes anything that's negative in a way, because they get, you know, keep, keep viewers on TV or in print, you know, circulation. But uh, I think when people really look at the facts for every four people that still have a question about the trolley project, there are 4,000 in favor of it. And the cars themselves are beautiful, and everybody that rides the trolleys are just loving it. Um, I, I picked, we, ultimately, we'll have five cars altogether. Two are already done and operating. The third one is almost there. It's in St. Louis now, and it's getting certified by Federal Transit Administration and, and MoDOT. Once that happens in the next six or so weeks, then the trolley will be running, like was actually designed to run, which is seven days a week. And two cars running it all the time with one as a backup when a mechanical thing happens or when someone runs into the trolley with their car. The trolley's never run into any cars. People have run into the trolley. Right. Yeah. It's, it's clipped. It did clip early on two side view mirrors, uh, people that didn't park within the, the white lines. But I think the word is out. It, it same thing happens in other cities when they start a new transit thing like that. It takes about six months for people to really wise up. Yeah, maybe I should park in the right spot. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like the. The coverage of it has been negative. Why do you think that? Why do you think that is? Well, there there are a few people that decided they'd really go after it. I think. And, but why? And they, like, well, I, why? I, I don't know what their end game is, and why they would want to change anything at this point after the construction's all over and make it of the construction happen all over again. To take are these government that, officials going to like it or private businesses? Pri- what are we, private? Uh, not businesses, just private individuals. Individuals. Okay. Yeah, because it's like if I read an article about the loop trolley, it's like, oh, it's a negative thing. I'm just like, well, I mean, you got to give Joe the benefit of the doubt on his track record here. We're approaching 50 years of, you know, calling some good shots when nobody else was seeing something. Right. I, I think people just need to wait and and start judging it and wait to, for it to go through all four seasons before they really judge it and see what the ridership is after that time and see what the finances are and all. It'll, it'll succeed uh, without a doubt, I think. And um it's it's uh, it's just so great to see people's smiles and these kids and their families or people out on a date, you know, or just to be able to ride a trolley and just relax and look out the windows and see all the developments that's going on and go to go, go to the park to a history museum exhibit or or have a picnic or transfer to the, the park circulator to get to the zoo mm-hmm. and all. It's just it's it's just really good. 
and it's it could be very meaningful for St. Louis as far as conventions go. So if, if there's a, a convention planned for the Midwest and they've narrowed it down to St. Louis, Louisville, and Indianapolis, or whatever cities, um, and all other things being equal, oh, well, they just have the great historic trolley system just started and connect to the number one city park, as I said earlier, and then this great restaurant, shopping, arts, and entertainment district. Let's have our convention in St. Louis. That'll also fill up rooms in downtown in Clayton with the hotels as they, they attend and, and ride the trolley on one of their days with their, at, that they're at the conference. And that's a real possibility. Uh, other things that is, it's living up to its name already on the investment part because people are investing on Del Mar. Um, there's a 14-story apartment building that was just built uh, that's open and filled. There's more There's more planned. There's about $200 million worth of planning going on right now. It's, it's so exciting to see. And it just keeps making the central quarter safer and safer and safer. And now Del Mar is one of the safest city streets in the Midwest. Yeah. You have uh, done so much in the St. Louis area. Uh, of course, specifically the loop, but but a, a person people turn to when there's a significant issue in St. Louis, and I and and so I have been looking forward to asking you this question because I've had U.S. senators in here, presidents of boards of aldermen, uh, council people from the city of St. Louis and in the suburbs, and I always ask in athletes, and I'll ask the question, media people, what do you think of the current state of St. Louis, and what things would you like to see improve? And, and no one of anybody who sat in that chair, Joe, has actually gone in and gone, okay, I see this is failing. Here is what I'm going to do to improve it. Uh, and that's not to say these people are all smoke and no fire, but you actually have done it. So when I ask that question, I'm, I'm really curious what your answer is to what is the state of St. Louis and what do you think we need to improve? Well, I, I think St. Louis was on a big tick until the Great Recession in 2008, and a lot of good projects stalled or just didn't, never, never got started again. And when you're thinking of those projects, which projects are in your mind when you say that? There are a lot of uh, buildings downtown in downtown St. Louis that would have been renovated at, at that time, but the financing fell right. apart on a lot of people. Um, I The only thing I've ever, ever developed downtown, because I wanted to do one thing downtown to support, I think every city, metropolitan area needs a strong downtown. So I I did create and build a Flamingo Bowl down mm -hmm. there. Uh, but the rest of my time is all spent still in, in the Delmar Loop area. Uh, but right now, I am I couldn't be more optimistic now than I, even before the Great Recession, I'm more optimistic now what's going on. The amount of investment in the Cortex area is mind-boggling. And it's, it's just so good because it's creating all this, all these research jobs and everything else for, for to bring jobs to St. Louis and people. And, and it's just starting to build exponentially, I think, uh, mm -hmm. with people being attracted, young startup companies and all. Uh, the Foundry Project is going to be a great project, I think. Um, there, there are several things going on downtown with, new, you know, vacant buildings being converted to boutique hotels with, you know, rooftop bars and all, kind of like the Moonrise in a way yeah. that was the first boutique one did to do that. Um, I should talk about the moonrise uh, too in a second, but they, yeah, there's so many good ones. I'm, I'm uh, grand center is doing some amazing things. Uh, the Kranzbergs and everybody else working in grand center. It's just, if, if there's no big earthquake or no big recession, St. Louis is poised for a, a gigantic comeback, I think over the next five years. 
I really do. And yet I feel like for a lot of people in St. Louis, and I don't know why this is, but I'm a lifelong St. Louis and I grew up in the city. Um, I feel like oftentimes there's almost a, a defeatist attitude or um, just, oh, well, we can't do it. And that's why when, when I'm sitting here with somebody who did do it, and it's not like you just took something that was already going really well and then ran with it. You took something that was not going well and, and built what you built. And I don't know why that is, but if I if St. Louis were a stock, I would buy up a lot of it right now. Part of it is it's, it's at a low value, but I also see a lot of the reasons you decided uh, for buying up St. Louis stock. There's a lot going on. I'm not sure if everybody around the metropolitan area is cognizant of that. I, I think you're right. And, and St. Louisans are their own worst enemies. It's, it's amazing how they bicker or cut down projects before they see how they affect the city in the long term. Because um, I guess it's easier to just talk, you know, down about stuff. You don't find that in other cities when they when you ask them about St. Louis. They either have a neutral, like, yeah, it's just St. Louis. It's a flyover city. But they're not negative. Um, or the, the few that knew, know some of the good things going on, they say, yeah, it's an upcoming city. And more and more national and international articles are appearing about St. Louis uh, and, and showing how, how good it is, how good a place it is to live and, and visit, and, and now even to have a company, a young IT company and all yeah. the startup. So I think St. Louisans should just smile a little bit more and, uh, <laughs> and enjoy it. Everybody is proud of Forest Park and the attractions there, but they should get proud also of, of the places I was just mentioning, like Cortex and all, and, and the expansion of things in the Del Mar Loop and what's happening in other neighborhoods that are coming up and, and back, whether it's the Grove or Cherokee, South Grand, uh, Central West End. It's, it's just pretty amazing what's happening in the health and sciences. It's just great. Yeah, I, th I think I always feel like, Joan, I don't know if, what your thoughts are, because the Loop certainly has it. Uh, Central West End certainly has it. Grove now certainly has it. When I was graduating um, uh, from from college, or I guess I'm, I still have eight hours left at the University of Missouri, so let's correct the record <laughs> from the journalism school. Uh, but when I was approaching graduation, I'm like, so many of my friends who were graduating from college and did knock out the final eight hours, they were moving to Chicago or they were moving to New York or L.A. or Dallas or Denver or whatever the case might be. And I've always felt like if we could keep a lot of our best and brightest that would help, but so many young twenty-somethings and maybe thirty-somethings vacate, and we and we we become like a, a quadruple A farm team for other cities because we do have a lot of talent here, but a lot of times they leave. I think it would be great if we could have more of what you have in the loop or what we're seeing happen in the Grove in the Central West End, where a uh, a professional young professional population could feel um, more enthused about their social life in St. Louis. Do you, do you see that? What is your assessment of that? Yeah, I, I see more and more of that because the, the, some of the people that are very, very successful and working on some of these projects are doing it for that reason, I think, to A, keep the, the, the good ones here in these companies, but also attract other good students yeah. and, and graduates from other cities. Um, my two daughters grew up in the Del Mar Loop and were comfortable because they were growing up around everybody. One went off to New York city for uh, college and the other one to Washington DC for college. They were very comfortable, uh, whether it's panhandlers on the street or something, which ones are really homeless, which are not, you know, all that kind of thing. And, um, and they liked their time in those, both those cities, but they both moved back to St. Louis because they really, really love St. Louis. And I think anybody out there listening that has not been down to the loop in a while should come down 
and and get comfortable. The after the Stockley verdict and the windows that were broken in over a twenty minute period uh, a few years ago, it made everybody not everybody it made a lot of people that live maybe in St. Charles County or St. Peter's or you know leery about coming into the city at all. And and they should come in the city because they're really missing out on life if they don't see all the new shops and galleries and all. And really, the beauty of all the construction that has been positive, and and not give in to fears of something that was just a twenty-minute episode. Mm-hmm. And and but the news around the world made it look where they frame those photographs, um, or not photographs, but the video coverage. It makes it look like Beirut's getting bombed again or something. When, when it was a it convenient wasn't. narrative of Ferguson Part Two, I think that's right. what, I think that's what so much of that was about. But I agree with that. When I wasn't was when I was anchoring a KMOV back in the early two thousands. Oh God, it's got to be dangerous when you're down there. I go when I walk out of that building, there's no one around, so I'm not even thinking about crime. But I feel like it's a I, I don't want to use the term prejudice because then that inflicts a whole other discussion. But I think it's thinking something is true that isn't necessarily true because it's not coming from experience. It's coming from hearsay and not necessarily accurate hearsay, which then gets me to the final thing. And I, I don't I never read if you did even have an opinion on it. I would imagine you do. The better together thing has, has been tabled. Um, but still, people talk about a St. Louis City County merger as a possibility and perhaps something that the region needs because they'll look at other areas in the Midwest that have done that and then experienced success. So I'm coming from a place of not even knowing what your position is on it, but I'm curious what, what you think about it. Not better together, but but the, the idea of a merger. Well, about 19 years ago, I received an award from Focus St. Louis. Uh, I don't know what the official name was now, but it, their top award of, you know, read vitalizing areas and stuff like that. Anyway, just a citizen's award, I guess. And so I, I had to give a speech and I, I wrote about that at, at that time. And my suggestion um, at that time was because politicians like to keep their jobs and their, and their influence on all as much as they can. So my suggestion was to have a, a supra government, an umbrella government over the county and the city. Um, but rather than break up the small smaller cities like University City, Webster Groves, Kirkwood and all, um, and Clayton, I'll let them keep a mayor and, and council members just like they have it for all the decisions like which streets are one way, which sign codes do you want in your commercial districts, do you want a commercial, all that local stuff, they would still be able to re- represent all their constituents because they still have the same number of council members. And then in the city of St. Louis, I figure why not do similar thing there to get buy-in? from the board of aldermen and, and, and citizens. Why not uh, have a mayor and council of the Central West End and of Lafayette Square and of Soulard? And I mean, it it's, might sound way out there, but why, why not? They, everybody still gets great representation in the Ville and, and all. Um, but then for, for competing for national contracts, it would be handled by the umbrella group mm-hmm. and, uh, and competing for anything, sports teams or anything else, um, or companies headquarters and all that have a unified development team in there. And I still think that makes sense. I mean, it's somewhat similar to better together, but in a way not, it wouldn't have been controversial. I don't think doing it that way. What what was when you mentioned this or spoke about it and in what, I guess it sounds like this was 2000 approximately. What was, how was that received? Um, I didn't get much response from it, to be honest with you. The the post-dispatch printed it verbatim and, and, and so it's in their archives. 
So people read about it, but I think it was, it just seemed to some people, I don't think they saw it as a necessary thing yeah. to have the county and city come together. But the 19 or 20 years since then, all we've seen is things go down, down, down. And the county is not impervious to decline. Uh, you're going to see a lot of decline over the next five or 10 years if, if we don't work together somehow, uh, whether it's residential or commercial, both. I mean, just and look after the region and not have all the competition between the entities because the only people that benefit from that are the big companies that yeah. are taking advantage, unfair advantage in some cases of, of you know, taxing, increment financing, and all, which is necessary sometimes, but not all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if, if we're, you think we're going to see this come back up or do you think that this now with what happened with Better Together has put this, at least for the time being, to bed? I, I think it'll come back up in some form or another with a lot of open public hearings uh, to determine who should be on the committee to mm-hmm. eventually make a, a recommendation and let the citizens of St. Louis and the county vote on it. And if if they can make a compelling enough case, then they'll get the votes. Yeah. But if the case isn't there, then they, then they won't. Uh, Joe, I have uh, enjoyed this. I was looking forward to it. Um, but to go down memory lane and then also uh, hear your, your stories of, of, I didn't realize that you were starting Blueberry Hill with $10,500. And now look what that thing's turned in. I'm not talking about that thing. I'm talking about the whole the whole street. <laughs> Wow, what an important, what an important ten thousand five hundred dollars that was! <laughs> and yeah. I did pay back my friends. Too. You did, for the record. <laughs> you do not owe any money on that. Uh, and then also, of course, talking about the state of St. Louis, people always love that discussion. But like I said, you've actually done done it and then seen what it's taken and have the uh, the vision for what it could take here for the next step. Thank you so much for coming in. I really enjoyed the You're conversation. Welcome. Thank Joe. you very much. So there it is, Joe Edwards, with us here on the Tim McKernan Show. He's presented by Mark Hanna of Evergreen. Wealth strategies. I'm sitting there with him, and I'm just like, man, this guy's intelligent. Like that's what I was, I was thinking. Like, he is, he is a sharp, sharp guy who has seen a lot, um, and who's done a lot, and who continues to want to do a lot, and is passionate about it. There are people who talk, and there are people who do, and he has done. And I have a great deal of respect for him. And sometimes, you know what, you can't hit a home run every single time. And I'm sure he would have somewhere. He goes, yeah, I wish I wouldn't have done this. Or, yeah, we could have done this and we did that. And I wish I would have gone this route. Whatever. It's part of the deal. It's part of part of the game is failing. But all it takes sometimes is just to have one home run. And uh, he certainly had more than one. Joe Edwards, our guest, thank uh, him for his time. Thank you for listening. And thank you to our sponsors for sponsoring the HomeLoanExpert.com. Ryan Kelly, Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies, James Carlton of the Carlton State Farm Insurance Agency, Johnny Landoff, Chevrolet Highway 270 in the Washington Elizabeth Exit, online at Landoff.com, Chevy Find New Roads, and, of course, Design Air Heating and Cooling, DesignAirService.com. For Gangster Pete, for Iggy, I'm Tim McKernan. This has been another edition of the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios.